0: Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help you bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and just figure out life. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult services or at our general services. We hope you enjoy. Tonight, tonight we are wrapping up kind of a series we opened up last week. And if you were here, uh, and don't worry if you weren't, I'm going to try to recap in four points in a second, um, I've been reading a book by a guy named Andy Stanley. He's a, he's a pastor, Atlanta, Georgia, really large church, North Point. And uh, he has a book that's entitled The Comparison Trap. And I read this book probably every three or so years just to remind myself that the second that I look laterally and start comparing myself to other people in my life bracket, my life becomes less. And so I, I, if you were like me, you kind of have this bad habit and tendency to kind of look laterally to the people that are around you and ask a question, how do I measure up? Now, it could be where you go to school, it could be uh, your GPA, it could be back when you were in high school, your athletic ability, um, it could be whatever. But if you're like me, you have a tendency to look at some people in your own life stage, and I imagine I'm probably older than everybody here, but and ask the question, like, how, how am I doing? And how should I feel about myself? How do I assign value to myself, right? And so today, I'm just, I spoke for like an hour last week, 45 minutes, so I'm, I only have six pages of notes to the 12 I normally have. So I'm going to try to do like 20-ish minutes and then get you guys in discussion groups to kind of talk about... Um, uh, the scripture and, and, and kind of concept that we're talking about. Now, really quick, four things. If you weren't here last week uh, that we talked about to kind of bring you up to speed and up to date, number one, last week we talked about that this idea, this, this, this comparison trap that we have, this disposition is an appetite to compare ourselves to other people. And what we discovered and what we learned last week is an appetite, an appetite really is something that can never fully be satisfied, right? I'll say it this way. An appetite can be temporarily filled but never fulfilled, Right? I'll put it this way. You've never right been to Cheesecake Factory and got a seven-layer chocolate mousse cake or whatever pie or whatever they're called, right? And then like ate it and never needed chocolate ever again in your life. Now, what happens like an hour later? You're like, you know what would sound good? An eight-layer, you know, whatever, right? Like it's, it's, you've never had, um, I don't know, a meal at a good restaurant and, and never been hungry ever again in your life. Why? Because you can be temporarily, at least this side of heaven, be filled but never fulfilled, Right? So that's what we talked about. This this disposition to compare ourselves to other people truly is an appetite. Number 2, we learned and discovered last week that comparison robs you. The second you look away from Jesus, your relationship with God, and you start looking at other people to ask the question, how do I measure up? You lose. It robs you of peace. It robs you of your placement in your relationship with God. It robs you of fulfillment, the joy and satisfaction that God wants you to have. Number 2, we talked about this place called the land of Ur. The land of Ur I didn't, I didn't come up with that. I'm not smart enough. And Stanley Land of Ur, what is it? We all, we all want to be richer. We all want to be skinnier. We all want to be smarter and taller. And we all want to be taller than 5'9", right? All of us, right? I'm 5'9". But anyways, there's this thing within us, right? And we live in a world, even from the earliest moments, where we're kind of brought on this treadmill of comparing ourselves to other people. We call it the land of Ur. Really, that's what college is. That We're all trying to get more Ur to our lives, but there's a problem. Because the second you get on this treadmill of Ur, this, in living in this land of Ur, you're going to realize that there are tons of people around you that have more-er. And now, how do you feel about yourself? Because the truth is, there is going to be someone that's going to be taller than you, richer than you, prettier than you, more athletic-er than you, whatever. But whatever it is, they're going to have more-er. So how do we assign ourselves value? How do we feel about ourselves then if there's always someone that has more than we are and more than what we have? Then finally, number four, we used a question, an interesting question, was who or what am I going to use as my reference point to tell me I'm okay? Okay. Who or what am I going to use as my reference point to tell me that I'm doing A-OK, I feel good about myself? The truth is, each one of us, right, each one of us look to something or someone to tell us if we're OK, if we are good enough. In other words, we all have a mirror, something that we look into that tells us how we're doing and how we measure up. So here's the question. What's your mirror? What is the thing that you look at to kind of make yourself feel like, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing all right? I don't know, you go into like your Chase Bank account and you're like, sick, I got $12. Whatever it is, right, what is it? What, what, what do you look at? In the exterior world around you to kind of give you an image. That's what mirrors do. They, they, they show you who you really are, right? Now, for some of us, our grades, right? For those of us that are in college, our grades communicate our worth, or maybe even what school we go to. You get a lot of pride in going to a certain type of school. No one brags about going to a junior college, right? Although, back when I went to Cypress College, before I went to Biola, I used to tell people I went to UCLA, which is University of Cypress on Lincoln Avenue. Fire. But anyways... <laughs> just, you know, us alumni. But anyways, uh, <laughs> maybe for you, it's your dating life, right? I don't know. Could, if, you, if you could just be with someone, I would know and you would feel that I'm lovable. I'm, a, I'm acceptable. I'm okay because I am tethered to somebody. That's, just probably, that's, probably most millenn- uh, that's probably most Gen Z and millennial that are in this room, right? You probably, relationships is probably the thing that you feel like if I could get into a relationship with this person or that person, I would feel like I have a place in this world. I'm doing all right. Maybe for you, it's just one person, If I get that one person to be impressed by me or or say that they're proud of me, I could feel like I was okay. Maybe it's mom, maybe it's dad. The truth is, we all have one or more things we look to to be our markers to tell us that we're doing all right. And so the question is, what is that for you? Because the truth is, we all have one. And you may not be able to answer that today, but my hope and prayer is that as you begin to pray a prayer that I'll teach you at the end, you would discover what that is for your life, because we all have one. Now, let's kind of pause for a second and maybe switch gears. The truth is, I think every single one of us in this room, we have like this inner voice that whispers and asks a question, just a little whisper into your ear, I wonder if like I'm okay. Like, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing, being where I'm supposed to be? Am I am I okay? Now, this isn't unique to just maybe the people in this room. This is every person that's ever lived all throughout human history. In fact, amongst all of the world's religions and other worldviews, the, the great news about Christianity, I think it offers some insight on where this question originates from. Am I Okay. Actually, a thought just came to my mind. If you ever read the creation narrative in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, right, and, and this is the, the creation story where God created and that the author of our life has the answers to our life. Now, and it's something interesting that happens. Adam and Eve, they, they mess up, they eat the tomato, the, the, whatever, the red fruit, whatever it was. They don't know what it was. Um, and something interesting happens. If you know the story, Genesis chapter 3, beginning verse 15 onward, what did they do? They hide. Now that's interesting. Like, have you ever played hide and seek with a kid? And they're like, they're like hiding, and they're like, they're like, you're like you idiot. You are know, like, 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 I see you. You're right there. You know, like you're you're like we're you know they're right there. They're trying to hide from an all-seeing, all-knowing God. Like that's silly. But God asks an interesting question: Adam, where are you? Now, did God not know the answer to that question? Was he like? Adam, hello, you think that's what it was like? No, of course not. He knew knew his latitude and longitude. He knew exactly where he was standing and where he was hiding, behind what tree or whatever it was. So why did God ask the question? It wasn't that God was lost, it was that Adam was lost. And here's why God asked Adam the question. He needed Adam to understand now where Adam was in proximity to where God was. He's now hiding from the only life-giving relationship he could ever actually have. And thus began this question. As we hide from God, we distance ourselves from God, in comes a question, how am I doing? And now so much of our life is projecting to the world that we are okay, even though we don't feel we really are okay. There's an emptiness inside of us that we try to fulfill by saying, by filling our lives with materialism, relationships, whatever it may possibly be. But we all have deep down within us a question that started in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 through 17, I wonder if I'm okay. Okay. And so like I said, I think the good news of Scripture is that it, it, off, it, it offers a solution to how you and I we can get off this never-ending treadmill of comparison that leaves us just depleted and exhausted because the gospel offers us a solution to what and who we are to look to. Now, it's important you understand this. The gospel, the, the Greek word euangelion, it, it means bringer of good news. This is why this is good news. Why? Because the gospel is so much more than a minimal entry requirements for getting into heaven. But that's what most people Believe like the message of Jesus is the twenty-seven books of the New Testament, the four books that record the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Most specifically, the Gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's like, well, I read them, and it's like, it's like, you know, it's not for like the here and now. It's like for the there and the then. It's like for heaven. But could it actually like maybe mean something today? I mean, maybe like you know, God doesn't want me to have like sex to do this, that, other thing. But like, I don't know. It can't really change my life today, can it? Wrong. It can. Maybe if we get some time, I'll talk about something called inaugurate eschatology, which is the idea that God wants us to experience moments of heaven here today. And because of the power of his Holy Spirit, you can. You can experience the fullness. The word is shalom. We translate it as peace, but it actually means wholeness. It means a full heart that needs nothing else. Not a girlfriend or a boyfriend, not a job, not that those things are necessarily bad by any means, but if God brings that stuff into your life, Great. And if God, at this timing of your life, doesn't bring that into your life, then great. But you lean on his timing, you trust that he's good. The gospel, right, so much more, right, than minimal entry requirements for getting into heaven. It's more than an SAT score. Grab your Bibles, go with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians, uh, real quick recap. Um, Written, well actually we did a series, if you care to really know about Galatians. I did like a, four-month series in the book of Galatians. Go on our podcast and listen to it. Um, But Galatians is an ancient epistle uh, written by Paul. An epistle, by the way, let me define that. A letter. We don't call them epistles today. That'd be weird. But a letter um, that he wrote to a specific place called Galatia. But anyways, written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, who actually wrote most of the New Testament. Pretty intelligent and smart guy and was an interesting guy and had some unique understandings and insights into the the significance of Christ's death on the cross and the ramifications that it really has on our lives here today. And so in the passage we're going to journey through today, he speaks to this idea of the mirrors that we have in our lives. In other words, to what am I looking to to discover to see if I'm all right? Or a question, where do I go to assign value to myself? And that's where we're headed today. I need you to keep this at the forefront of your mind. Where do I go to assign value to my life? Paul, being the brilliant man that he was, he shines some light on and gives a huge clue on how to get off this comparison treadmill that we are almost born on. It says this in Galatians 4:4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, highlight to redeem those under the law. Now you may or may not know this, but you and I were born under this, under a law. Now, what this means is that you and I are born, we are born accountable to the perfect law of God. Now, there's more than the Ten Commandments. There's actually 625 laws that stem from the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. There's a plethora of laws. In the Old Testament. Now, there's three types of laws, but we don't have time to talk about that. But there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament. Now, what it means is because God is perfect and you and I are born into the world unperfect, we are still accountable to the law. In this series of Galatians, I I taught you something about the law of God that it was never designed to remove sin, rather, to just reveal sin. It's like I used an example during that sermon of a makeup mirror, right? A makeup mirror doesn't clear your imperfections, rather, it just shows you your imperfections. When I got married, that I looked into my wife's makeup mirror, and again, I said my self-esteem has never been the same, right? Like, ladies, I don't know how you do it, right? It shows you parts of your face and divots and things, that, you know, like, you've, you know, a regular mirror doesn't show you. That's what the law was supposed to do, and this is why when people say, like, well, good people go to heaven, <laughs> not if you look close enough and who they are. The Bible says that no, not one is good, right? And so the truth is, you and I, right, we're born into a world that has set parameters around it by our creator, whether you and I are conscious of it or not. And the truth is, at some level, we all know that there's a law because there's something in you and there's something in me that says I should do and I shouldn't do, right? You have, you have certain things. I should do this and I, for some reason, I know I shouldn't do that. Now, it's, it's, yes, it's more than torturing babies, obviously. We all know that's wrong. But I, I shouldn't watch this type of content. I shouldn't do these types of things. There's something in you that knows you should stay away from something and you should do some things instead, Now, the Bible gives language to this. It says that God has written his law within our hearts. But there is this universal set of morality that's set within the human heart and that there is a law of God. Now, this is, I need you to track with me here because this is foundational to understanding where we're going. This is the root of our issue because there is enough of God's law written on your heart and there is enough of God's law that is written on my heart to know that there is something broken within you and within me. That there's something wrong with you and there's something wrong with me. That nothing in this world seems to actually fix? I mean, is it education? If we can make the world more educated, bring up the literacy level of the world, would that solve the problem that exists in me and in you? What about if we can make people, give them access to clean water and food? Would that fix the brokenness in the world? Science, philosophy, psychology, wealth, are these the answers? I think not. I don't think any of the things in the external world can fix the things that are inside your human heart and mind. Now the reality is, deep down, I think this makes us uncomfortable. And as we get a little bit older around the age of us here today, you kind of become cognizant of your own inadequacies and that this brokenness in your life. And so what we normally do is we funnel ourselves in the busyness. Because if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And it's the noise of our busyness that drowns out the pain that we may feel that something is wrong in my life or relationships, or whatever, whatever else it may be. But we all know there's something wrong with us, and this makes us uncomfortable. So we start, start looking to the other broken people in our world, asking the question, well, how do I measure up then? But this is silly, because you're looking to other broken people to give you your sense of value. Let me tell you why this is silly. Would you ever go to a junkyard to figure out the original or proper design of a car? No, they're there for a reason, they're junk, because it's broken. So when you and I look to others to see how we measure up, We're just looking at broken people, and it gives us a broken mirror, just deepening how bad we feel about ourselves, that there's this insecurity in you and in me that's in the root of our soul, and that nothing and nobody, no accomplishment outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ will fill. Continue with me in verse 4. I'll read it again. It says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. I want you to highlight really quick, in your Bibles or mentally for you, The word redeem. What does the word redemption mean? To redeem means to buy back or to restore what was lost, broken, or fragmented. And I don't want you to miss what Paul is talking about in this verse. Because what he's saying is that what Christ did on the cross somehow and in some way has the possibility of affecting every human being who has ever lived because of what we discussed earlier. That all humans... Since Genesis chapter 3, since the Garden of Eden, have been born under this law that now breeds an inadequacy in you because you know you don't measure up. By the way, men, there's a book I want you to read. It's by John Eldridge. It's entitled Wild at Heart. It's a phenomenal read. Ladies, there's a, a book that his, um, uh, his wife uh, wrote called Captivating. I recommend those two books to everybody. For the guys in it, Wild at Heart, he talks about what the heart of a man really cries out for is, am I enough? It's inadequacy. Every male struggles with... Do I have what it takes? I'll give you an example, right? I've I've shared this stat before. There's a book um, entitled Father Fiction. In it, he surveys the top 500 Fortune 500 companies. The largest 500 companies on the planet, 87% of those companies are all led by men who come from single family households without a dad. That's a weird statistic. Their sense of inadequacy, they didn't have a dad that would to give them their name or to add courage into their life, so they decided to think masculinity was about achievement, about wealth, about whatever it may be, right? Continue with me in verse 5, it says this, that we, you and I, might receive adoption. I want you to highlight that word to sonship. This is super important, and here's why. Because when you and I read scripture, oftentimes I realize that it flies so far over our head. This is why I would encourage you to get a study Bible and a commentary because we've got to remind ourselves this text is pretty old, right? But the word adoption is really interesting and we'll talk about it in a second. But what this means is that the goal of Christianity, the reason that you guys sit in these chairs today and you're coming into a church is more, to sing, more than just to sing songs and hear a guy talk. The goal of Christianity and the goal of Christ wasn't just to say you are now forgiven of your sin and now you come to the pleasure factory of heaven where there's churros and ice cream in every corner and you can eat them and you don't get fat. It's more than that. Because what God did when he sent Jesus into the world was to adopt us, graft us, invite us, and bring us into his family. Now, I want you to see and hear this as the ancient Jews would have seen and heard this. In the Hebrew language, there is not a word for adoption, but Paul thought this was so expressive and so spot on for what Christ wants for us that he borrowed it from the Greek culture, and he used the Greek word to shed light on the reality that the creator of all things who literally spoke the world and galaxy and everything into existence, right? Who is timeless, eternal, and all-powerful that this grand and great God, who we've said in the past is not bigger than you think, he's bigger than you can think, who begins where your imagination comes to an end, that great and grand God wants you and I to belong and be a part of a group that he calls his, his family. Now, when I use the word adoption in the 21st century, you probably most, and especially in American culture, you think most, mostly adopting probably babies, Right? But when Paul used the Greek term in the first century, they thought of adults. Why? Because no one adopted babies in the ancient world because they died. Most human beings that have ever lived died before the age of three. So they thought of adults. In fact, people in the ancient world often adopted people all the time. And what that meant was that you can now belong to a different family, and you can now inherit the blessings of that family, and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to move anywhere. You don't have to sign any papers. When Paul used this language, his audience would have heard, the God who knows all of your crap, all of your Google search history, who knows everything about you, your hurts, habits, and hangups, all of your sin, that God who knows everything about you. In your adult life, you've developed a rap sheet, a sinless, it's that's as long as a CVS receipt. That God welcomes you into his family, that the son of God became a son of man so that mankind becomes, could become sons and daughters of God. The God who knows everything, who knows you wholly and completely loves you fully. That's what they would have heard when they heard the word of adoption. The theological term here is that the creative relationality link was restored. What do I mean by that? Sin fragmented and broke three things. What three things did sin break? Your ability to be in God's family, your vertical relationship, your horizontal or uh, yeah, your relationship with other people. Your relationship with God, your relationship with people, and your relationship with the created world. All of it is now broken. But God through his son Jesus Christ, has given you and I the ability, the, 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 the privilege of being grafted back into his family, that at the cross, your relationship with God was restored, relinked, which is the Hebrew word shalem. Shalem means to be uh, uh, restored back into right standing with God, which is the outworking of what shalom does in our lives. Verse 6, follow with me, it says this, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, highlight, Father. Now, these two words bring a revolutionary idea to how we perceive God. They give us such insight onto the character of God because this word, Abba, which Jesus said, by the way, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he cried out to God, he said, Abba, Father. The word Abba best translates in the English, Daddy, which is crazy. No one in the ancient world, especially the Jews, would have ever thought of God as a dad as a heavenly father. That was only Jesus brings this new revelation of how you and I can relate to God the Father. In fact, ancient Jews were so terrified or so reverent and respective of God that they didn't even, whenever you read in your Old Testament and it says the word Lord, L-O-R-D, it was replaced with Elohim because the original word was what we think is Yahweh. But they stopped saying the personal name of God, Yahweh, and they just wrote L-O-R-D in their their scripture um, so that... They were so terrified of even saying the name of God because they didn't want to say it incorrectly. And then comes Jesus and says, that God that's that that, uh, great, that that powerful, that awesome, you can know as dad. Jews couldn't even understand that, that God could relate to you and I like a son or a daughter does to their good and loving dad. Years ago, I shared this story, I think, with you. Um, I had Rob, um, I think, speaking or praying or something in high school, Rob is... Back there right now. And uh, I had him pray or something like that. And he started his prayer with, Dear Dad. Dear Daddy, I'm just kidding. Uh, he said, Dear Sky Dad, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, and I was thinking about that, like, I love that. Not the daddy part, that's cringy, but the dad part. I'm just kidding, Rob. <laughs> but here's why, here's why I appreciated that. As he, as he opens up his prayer with, Dear Dad, he understands that this wasn't a tra- transactional event where you get a pat on the back and you're forgiven. And you maybe get this like ID card. You get to show like St. Thomas at the gate. You're like, dude, I made it. And you like high fives you, you know, or you learn some secret handshake. None of that, right? It's more than that. It's a relational event because it's far, far more personal than all of that that you and I have been adopted, grafted into, and you now belong into the family of God where he calls you his. So here's the question. The big question is, what if that understanding moved from your head and you begin to experience that understanding in your heart? How would that change the way you see yourself? I'll say it this way. How would looking into that mirror change the way you see your value or rather assign value to yourself? As long as Christianity is a categorical event or categorical to you, or maybe even operates in your life like an entrance exam into heaven, you will never see yourself like God wants you to see yourself and you miss out on so much. You may have a saved soul, but you will live a lost life. And God wants to save you from both. Big question is what if? What if you began, what if I began, and every day when I feel the desire to compare myself to other people, say, I wish I was as smart as, I wish I was as good looking as, I wish I had the opportunities, I wish I had the wealth as, I wish I whatever, what if we just stopped that rabbit hole of thoughts that deepens the hole in our hearts, makes us feel worse about ourselves, and just in that moment said, God, would you teach me to take my cue of who I am from you? In other words, God, would you help me begin to see myself as you see me? Now it begins with a question. Do you know what God sees when he sees you? If you're a follower of Jesus, you've given your life over to Jesus Christ and you're in this room tonight, what God sees when he looks at you is not your Google search history, not your TikToks or your Instagram stories, none of that, not what you did on a Friday night. If you, have, if you are covered in Jesus Christ like he says in Galatians, what he sees is his son or his daughter and whom he loves holy. And that's only made possible, like he talks about, because of the cross. The cross is the solution the comparison trap. And so here's tonight what I'm challenging you to do. To take your cue from the one who made you. Right? From the one who loves you, from the one who sent his son to reconcile you back into a relationship with himself. And to do that, I just want to encourage you to just, this week, every day, pray a prayer. If you're like me, you do have this tendency to kind of start looking at other people's lives and then you feel less about yourself. See, less about yourself. Instagram is like probably one of the most toxic things that's ever been created. I mean, social media, like, is probably one of the most toxic. All it is is a bunch of people projecting an image of themselves that isn't actually, it's a filtered view of their not just their face, their entire lives. And and then you're measuring up who you really are to who they really aren't. It just deepens a sense of inadequacy in all of us. Take our cue from the one who has made you. How would that change the way you see yourself? How would that fundamentally change the way that you assign value to you? Where do you go to get value? And if you could begin to see God as your heavenly father who calls you loved, accepted, and belonged, who knows everything about you, who you can keep nothing hidden from, yet he loves you wholly, how would that change the way in which you see yourself? And so this week, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. Heavenly father, I want your will for my life. Could you help me see myself as you see me? Could you help me see myself through your eyes? That's a pray, I pray over my daughter, I pray over myself, and as I've done that, and as I promise, and this is the last thing I'll say is this. If you're willing to commit to praying that, like God, would you begin today, right now, and in this moment, as I read, reflect, and meditate on your word, begin to alter the way I see myself in a way that's more in accordance with the way you see me, you will find exactly what you are looking for in this world, which is wholeness. And that can only come from seeing yourself wholly through the eyes of God. Put your arm around somebody, I'll pray for us, and then I'll tell us what's next. Father, today I am thankful that you're a God that is personal. Lord God, you didn't just cross an ocean, a continent, a planet, a universe, you crossed a dimension. God, coming from heaven to earth, becoming one of us, all God to reconcile us back to you. And so, Father, I am so thankful, God, that we have a God that cares about us this much, loves us, and who wants to impute value to us so we don't search for value and assign it to ourselves in this world. Lord God, would you continue to fill our hearts with yourself so we need not anything. Lord God, we love you, we thank you, we give you this time. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening and have a blessed day.